0: I'd invite you to turn with me once again back to the book of Isaiah. And today we are in chapter 41. So I'd invite you to turn with me to Isaiah 41. Last week we began a little series on a section of Isaiah. We're not going to be going through the entire book, but we're going through what could be called Second Isaiah if it had been split up into two books. First, Isaiah focuses on the judgment and wrath of God that is coming. And then, starting in chapter 40, the book of Isaiah then shifts in tone, and it shifts towards one of hope and salvation. Still, there is judgment coming, but now uh, Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people. And so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at Isaiah 40 through to 53, and so we continue in that this morning. Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 1. Would you rise out of reverence for God's word as we read this together? (coughs) Hear the word of God. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor, and everyone says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good! And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put the wilderness, put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive, and I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that... What they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor, who, when I ask, Gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is the mighty word of the one true and living God. You may be seated. Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been filled with fear? Many things can cause fear in our lives. Fear about the future. Fear about our situation. Fear of disease. Fear of death. Fear of losing something or someone. Fear where you don't know if you can make ends meet. Fear that you don't know where your next meal might come from. Of course, fear comes in many forms and from many sources. Fear can weigh us down like a heavy chain around our neck, in the form of worries or concerns or anxieties. There could be little fears, like being afraid to make a small mistake, or maybe Fear of public speaking, but there can also be big fears, aren't there? Fears that even can grow to the extent of an irrational phobia. But whether the fear is big or small, how do we address fear? How does Holy Scripture address fear? In Isaiah 41 this morning, God is addressing people who are afraid. At this time, most of the people of Judah have been taken off to Babylon. The leaders, the nobles, the administrators, the wealthy. There's only a small number of Israelites who are left in the land. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And this small remnant of of Israelites in the land of Judah are surrounded on every side by hostile nations who want to destroy them or at least enslave them. And this right here is the lowest point in all of Israel's history. This is the smallest that Israel has ever been. They are at their most vulnerable. Judah is just hanging on by a single thread. It is a tiny remnant, this nation. And it's surrounded by nations much greater, much more powerful than they. So Israel has much to be fearful about. And God speaks through the prophet here to tell Israel why It does not need to fear. God informs the remnant people of Israel living in Judah why they do not need to be afraid. You know what? As the people of God today, we need to hear the same message. Why we do not need to fear. Because more and more we can feel like we're in the same situation because there seem to be fewer and fewer real Christians. Spiritual darkness seems to be overtaking our land. More people seem to be increasingly hostile towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we too may feel like we're surrounded, like we are an outnumbered, People. And we need to be told why we don't need to be afraid. In our passage this morning in Isaiah 41, we're going to see four reasons why we don't need to be afraid. First of all, because God is eternal, verses 2 to 4. Secondly, because idols are nothing, verses 5 to 7. Thirdly, Because God is our Redeemer, verses 8 to 20. And finally, because God is sovereign, verses 21 to 29. So because God is eternal, because because idols are nothing, because God is our Redeemer, because God is sovereign. That's why we don't need to fear today. So let's get into our text this morning. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. This is God speaking here. And in verse 1 here, he is, he's setting up a scenario here. And the scenario is a mock trial. He says, Let us, let us draw near together for judgment. He's basically saying, let's come together and settle this in a court of law. And so God has has set up the setting for us, for this chapter. And so we can use our imagination for a moment and think of a courtroom setting. If you've ever watched a courtroom drama or been to court in real life, you know that there is a judge, there's a prosecutor, and there's a defender. Isn't there And the scenario here that God is laying out is that all the many surrounding nations are in the prosecutor's position, along with all of their gods. They're the ones wanting to take Israel down. They want to destroy Judah. They want to wipe out the people of God from history. So what does that mean? That means that little Israel is the defendant. And so Israel's God is like the defense attorney. And so God invites all of the coastlands to come together along with all the peoples. This is just a way of saying all the nations from the furthest to the closest can come. It would be like if we said, let Nova Scotia and Vancouver Island come along with all of the provinces. That would be a way of talking about all of Canada so here God is inviting to this courtroom all the nations as far away as the coastlands. Come on, all of you, bring it on. So all the nations have gathered together with their many gods to bring suit against tiny Israel all alone with its one God. <coughs> the God rises to speak first. Listen while I talk, he says. Conserve your energy. Rest up. You're going to need it. And so in verses 2 to 4, God aggressively launches into his defense. Verse 2. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow." He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generation from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Now the first question we need to answer here is, who is God talking about here? Who is this figure that God has summoned from the east? and tramples kings under his feet. Well, he is a great king from the land of Persia. In his, name, his name in Persian was Kurush, but in English we call him Cyrus. History knows him as Cyrus the Great. As king of Persia, Cyrus first took down the, the Median Empire, and then the kingdom of Lydia, and then he took down the great empire Of Babylon. And in doing so, Cyrus the Great created the largest empire the world had ever seen. And this is the king that God has raised up in order to bring his people home to Judah. But why should Israel not fear? We see the answer in verse 4 Who has performed this and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord? the first and with the last, I am He. It is as though God is saying, do you think that Cyrus has done all this by accident? Do you think he came along by fate or by chance? Was it the gods of Persia who did this? No, it was me. I am the one who not only raises up Cyrus in this generation, but I am the one who has raised up all people's from all generations, God is claiming here. So why should the people of God not be afraid then, whether Israel back then or us today? Because the Lord God, He is the first and the last. God is eternal. He was there in the beginning and He will always be, for He has no end. Here God says, I am He in this section of Isaiah that we are studying together from Isaiah chapter 40 to 53, God will declare this, I am He. He will say this seven times. So this is the first instance, the first of the seven times. And when God says, I am He, it is an echo of the name that He told Moses on Mount Sinai. I am who I am. So when God says, I am, or I am He, He is declaring that He is the only God, that He is eternal and all-powerful. So why should we not be afraid? Because if God is eternal, then He has the past, the present, and the future all under His control. If we take just a moment to think about it, all of our fear ultimately comes from the fact that we don't know the future. We don't know what will happen next. And so we fear what the future may or may not bring. But if we know the God who holds the future in his hands, then that is a very good reason not to be afraid. Our second point this morning is why we don't need to fear is because idols are nothing. Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he smooths with the hammer. Him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So if we go back to our courtroom, now it's the other side's opportunity to get up and speak. All the the nations of the earth are now trembling to speak before God. They have to screw up their nerve. They have to encourage one another. Be strong. And now they bring forth their gods along with them. Their idols. Their gold-plated images. Their welded statues. And the picture here is is they they try to set the idol down, but it keeps falling over. So they have to nail it in place so that it doesn't topple over. These gods are so powerless, they can't even hold themselves up. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one who says, I am he. But in stark contrast, these gods need nails to hold them upright and in place. And these gods can't even speak. They are silent before the one true and living God. They have no case to bring. So God will begin speaking again. We don't have to be afraid, because all the gods and all the idols of the nations are nothing. Israel may be surrounded by powerful nations and mighty gods who make boastful claims. We may be surrounded by powerful opposition and darkness, by superstitions and worldviews and philosophies and religions and atheism and hedonism, But in comparison to God, all these things amount to nothing. And so when we are afraid, we must remember that all the forces of darkness are nothing in comparison with God, with our God. Our third point this morning is that we don't have to be afraid because God is our Redeemer. And this is the biggest section verses 8 to 19, but we're going to focus our attention on the first part, 8 to 14, because it is here in this section that God tells Israel no less than three times not to fear. Verse 10, verse 13, verse 14. So verse 10 says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13 for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. And 14, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And in each of these three verses, what is the common reason why Israel should not fear? Well, verse 10, I am, I am with you, I am your God. Verse 13, I hold your right hand, the Lord, your God. Verse 14, I am the one who helps you, your Redeemer. So what is the common reason? I am with you, I am yours. Here, it is like the the great defense attorney now turns around to speak to his people, whom he is defending in the courtroom. God is reminding his people of his relationship with uh, with them. He is their God because they are his people first. Look at verses 8 to 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do you see here how God calls Israel my servant two times? And he repeats two times that he has chosen them. They belong to him. They are his. Therefore, they do not need to be afraid. And in our study of these chapters between chapter 40 and 53, we we are wanting to pay special attention to this word servant here. It's going to be used 20 times in these chapters. And most of them, when it refers to servant, it's referring to Israel, as we see here. This is the first and second time out of 20 that we see the word servant. So we need to remember that and keep that in mind uh, in the coming weeks. Israel is the servant and God is the king, as it says in verse 21. As Israel's king... God will surely take care of his servant. Why? Because God chose Israel to be his servant. And he will not cast his servant away. So Israel does not need to be afraid. Israel can take full confidence in its relationship with God as his people. They know their place with God. They belong to God. And they can be assured that he will preserve and protect what belongs to him. That is reason enough not to fear. But God adds a further reason in verse 14. If you will look with me there once again. What does he call himself? At the end of the verse he says, Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So all of the great and powerful nations with all of their gods are surrounding weak, poor, tiny, little Israel, insignificant like a little worm, and yet tiny Israel has a very big God. Israel's God is so big that all the nations with all their gods are as nothing before him. And it is this big God who has declared that he himself is the one who's going to help this tiny wormy Israel. But as we saw, God adds here an extra encouragement. He calls himself Israel's Redeemer. A redeemer is someone, usually a family member or relative, who pays the price to get you back out of bondage. Imagine just for a moment that you were enslaved through war, or you had sold yourself into slavery in order to survive. Or imagine you are kidnapped and held for ransom. And then someone comes along and pays for your freedom to bring you out of bondage. Or someone comes along and pays your ransom so that the kidnappers will let you go. Just imagine the sense of relief you'd have. The sense of gratitude and love you would feel towards the person who had paid the price for your freedom towards your Redeemer. And that is what God is saying He's going to do for Israel. He has been their Redeemer all the way along and He will continue to redeem them. And in this single word, this word, Redeemer, we see the gospel in Isaiah chapter 41. God is the one who redeems his people. The ultimate redemption was the purchasing of his people, us, back from the bondage of sin and and of death and to the flesh and the world and the devil by means of the most precious commodity, the most valuable form of payment in the entire universe, the blood of the God-man shed on the altar of the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, the highest, greatest, and best reason not to be afraid is the gospel. When Jesus, as the Lamb of God, died on the cross and rose again, his sacrifice was perfectly pleasing to God. And so everyone who is in Christ by faith in him is no longer under the wrath of God for sin. The wrath of God is the biggest thing to fear. And we have been redeemed out from under his wrath. To his great love that is in Jesus Christ. And so if our greatest fear, our greatest possible fear, has been met in the gospel, then the gospel can also address every lesser fear. We don't need to fear, because just like Israel was chosen and redeemed, so we too have been chosen by God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 3 forward. And listen for the same two words, chosen and redeemed. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we have been chosen and redeemed. This morning, we don't need to be afraid, God says in his word, because he is eternal, because the idols in this life are nothing, because God is our redeemer. Our fourth and final point this morning is that we don't need to fear because God is sovereign and he knows everything. We see this in verses 21 to the end. And here we go back to the courtroom. Verse 21, if you look with me there. We're going back to the courtroom. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do harm, or rather do good, or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So, here, back in the courtroom, God is directly challenging the false gods and idols that the nations are trusting in. He is cross examining them now. He is saying to the gods, If you're so great, then prove it. Prove that you know something, anything. Tell us the future. Or if that's too hard, then at least tell us something from the past. If you are really and truly gods, show us something. Do something good, and we will marvel. Or do something bad, so that we'll shake in our boots. Clearly the true and living God is holding these false gods up to mockery here. But verse 24 comes the judgment regarding these idols. He says, you are nothing. And your ability to do anything is even less than nothing. But then comes the judgment upon those who would trust and rely upon idols instead of the one true and living God. He says, an abomination is he who chooses you. Those words ought to make us tremble. (coughs) Because an abomination is a detested thing. Idolatry is detestable and abhorrent and abominable in the sight of God. Anyone who chooses a nothing idol over God is an abomination in his eyes. But behind this challenge of what these nothing gods cannot do is the fact of what God himself can do. They cannot tell the past, what has happened, or the future, what is to come. But God can. They cannot do anything, whether good or harmful, but God can. (coughs) And this emphasis upon God knowing the past and the future, knowing all things, this is also a reason not to fear. We don't have to know the future. We just have to know the one who does. Because if God is eternal, as we said earlier, the first and the last, then that also means that he knows all things. And if God knows all things, then there is nothing outside of his knowledge. And so there is nothing outside of his control. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid because God knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. And right along with God knowing everything is God's sovereignty being on full display. So in verse 25, God makes reference for a second time in this chapter to King Cyrus the Great, the Persian king who would topple the Babylonian Empire and allow the Jewish people to return home to Judah. Verse 25, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads the clay. So God declares, I did this. It is God who stirred Cyrus the Great up to trample on nations. Because all rulers, kings, and princes are in his hands. God is sovereign over all. Verse 26. Who declared it from the beginning, that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. Again, God challenges the false gods of the nations. Did they know that Cyrus would come? Did they declare this beforehand? Here God is exposing the fact that these idols have no idea what's going on. For the false gods have no eyes to see or tongues to speak or minds to understand. Verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Verse 29, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. We said at the beginning that the setting for this chapter is a court of law, where God is like the defense attorney for tiny Israel, challenging the prosecution, all the nations with all their gods, to bring forth their case. But who else is in a courtroom? A judge! A judge! And we didn't identify who the judge is in this scenario. Well, verse 29 identifies who the judge is. Surprise! God is the judge. And he gives the final verdict of judgment upon all the other gods. But what is the judge's verdict? He says they, meaning all the gods of the nations, are all a delusion. They are a vanity. They are false. Their works are nothing. They amount to nothing. They mean nothing. The idols may look strong and sturdy because they're made of molten metal, but they have no more real substance than an empty breath of wind. So let's bring all this together and think together about how this applies to us for a moment. There are many fears in our lives, many reasons to be afraid. Like Israel, we may feel very small and the problems surrounding us may feel very large and overwhelming. We may have fear about what the future holds, fear of other people, fear related to our circumstances, fear connected to our finances. There may be worries, concerns, anxiety at work or at school. But God tells us not to fear, not to be afraid. Because no matter what we may be facing, He Himself is with us no matter what we may be fearing, that we know that God is eternal, that he holds the past, the present, and the future, and we can trust him, that he has our future safely in his hands. We don't need to fear because the forces of darkness that are arrayed against us and seem so frightening are actually nothing in comparison with God. And because God is our Redeemer, who has met our greatest need of salvation through the work of Christ. Because we have been chosen and saved by Him. Our greatest fears have already been conquered, for we no longer have to fear the wrath of God. And we don't need to fear, because God is sovereign. He knows all, and is in control of all. So when you are afraid, you can look your fear in the eye and tell it, I don't need to fear, because my God is eternal. Because no other gods exist that can oppose me. Because my God has chosen and redeemed me. Because my God knows all and is sovereign over all. Verse 10, let us let that echo in our hearts. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let us pray. Father God, our holy God, our redeemer, our rock. Father, there are so many things in this short life to fear and to be afraid of. And like tiny little Israel, we can feel surrounded and overwhelmed. But Father, we thank you for the reminder from your word that if we belong to Jesus Christ, if we are your people, then there are many and good reasons not to fear. So Father, help us to meditate upon these things, to think upon these things deeply, that when the next time fear arises in our hearts or minds, help us to remember all, or maybe even just one of these points this morning, to know that you are with us, that you have the, the past, the present, and the future in your hands, that you are eternal, that you know all things, that you are sovereign, and that really idols are nothing. And so, Father, help us to grow in the confidence that, Of our relationship with you. That if you are for us. Who can be against us? And That nothing. Can separate us from the love. Of God that is in Christ Jesus. Our Lord. Father fill us with. Confidence. Not an arrogant confidence. That is foolhardy. But rather the confidence. Where we know who we are. We know our identity in Christ. Because we are in him, we know that we have been chosen by you, that we are your servant, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, and you will uphold us with your righteous right hand. So, Father, I pray that these things would sink down deep. And as we reflect upon the gospel, that you are our redeemer, This too would be a source of comfort that would ease our fears. For the greatest possible thing to fear is your wrath. Jesus himself said to his disciples, do not fear those who can kill merely the body but cannot kill kill the soul. Rather fear him who can kill both the body and the soul in hell. Father, you are the one we are to fear. And yet you have taken care of that fear fully, completely, and eternally. Because you have redeemed us by nothing less than the precious blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to think deeply upon these things. To apply these things to our lives. To continue to worship you day by day. So that you may be glorified and exalted in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.